Well, it's always good to be with you. Glad to um, see the two saints here today. What a treat to have them right up front, as usual. I also want to mention before we get started, um, you've seen in the announcements, but Kathy and I are leading a tour to Israel, and we've got some uh, brochures up here. We've got a couple of things that you could grab. But if you've never been to the Holy Land, or if you've never been on a, a, a single bus where you can actually uh, have a little more spontaneity and enjoy the, the camaraderie of, uh, of a small fellowship in Israel, it's a great way to connect the Bible and its lands to your life. Uh, it really is transformational. So I, if you've never been, I just invite you. There's all I'm kind of opening up to the marathon class first before we make it uh, public which will be pretty quick. So some of you have already signed up, and Kathy and I would love to um, have you join us. So you can grab this maybe after class, and uh, Kathy will have some as well you can grab if you'd, if you'd like to join us. Well, I'd like to sort of start with a joke uh, in honor of the two saints being here. Not that, not that they're a joke or anything, but... Um, but I don't have a joke, but I have a practical joke maybe I could share with you or a story of one. My, fam- my favorite uh, New Year's was when I did a practical joke at Y2K. Uh, you remember Y2K? This is when the computers were going to all crash and the world would implode into this little black hole because we're so, you know, depending on computers to, to uh, run the world. Well, um, we all went over to my grandmother's house for, to watch you know, the ball fall at Times Square. And in New York, of course, they get midnight an hour before we get midnight. So we were, but you know, that East Coast is the first time that would hit midnight for the United States. And so we were there in, the, in my grandmother's living room, had the television on, getting ready to watch the ball fall. And for us, it was 11 p.m., but still. You know, midnight hits the United States uh, an, an hour ahead. And so everyone's glued to the television, and probably about, you know, two minutes before midnight in, uh, in New York, I snuck out the back door, walked around to the side of the house, and my grandmother's television was on the front of the house right by the breaker box. And I could hear the television through the front wall. And I hear a 10, 9, 8, 5, 5, 3, 2, 1, Happy New Year. And I hit the breaker box and the whole house went dark. <laughs> then I snuck around back, back in the back and everyone's kind of running around, you know, lighting candles. And my mom is running around going, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We're going to be okay. <laughs> Oh, it was wonderful. I, 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 just, I just let it go on for like 10 minutes, just kind of standing there watching everybody. And then I snuck, snuck back around and turned it all on and uh, ended up being a big joke. But you know, the, the Y2K was a big joke, wasn't it? We were so afraid of what was going to happen in our future that uh, you know, somehow zeros and ones were going to make a big difference for uh, for the world as we know it, and it ended up being a firecracker that did nothing. It was the dud. You know, I've thought about that a lot in the last, what's it been now, 17 years. 
thought about that a lot. That's sort of a metaphor for our future in general. We're afraid of it. We're afraid of it. We're afraid to face it. Because the unknown is so, well, unknown. I mean, none of us knows what's going to happen tomorrow, much less what's going to happen in the next hour. And if we allow ourselves, it can consume us with fear. What if you could know your future? Like, what if you could know the future for your life? I'm not talking about prophecy. I'm not talking about the fact that the rapture could happen at any moment or the kingdom of God could happen in seven years or uh, even the eternal state. That's future, to be sure. But I'm talking about your future here and now, if you know what I mean, your life. What if you could know it? What if you could know about the future? What if there was a passage in the Bible that actually gave you insight of what you can expect in your future. Would you have the courage to look at it? Well, if not, you might want to get up and leave because we're going to look at it. And it's actually a couple of places. The first is going to be in Numbers chapter 13. So turn there with me, if you would, to Numbers chapter 13. We're going to look at a couple of incidents. One with Israel the nation and the other with Israel the man. Israel the nation. Numbers chapter 13, if you're familiar with the context of what's going on at this point in Israel's very young history, they had left Egypt. God miraculously freed them from slavery. They're headed to the promised land. They just spent considerable months at Sinai receiving the law. And now they're on their way to the promised land, and they come to the edge of it at a place called Kadesh Barnea. If you picture Israel, it's at the very bottom of Israel, just south of Hebron. Kadesh Barnea, right on the border of the Holy Land. Moses sends out spies to look at the, um, you know, to look at the land, to survey it, and to come back and bring a report. And so if you look down at verse 25, that's where we're going to start. Numbers chapter 13, starting in verse 25. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told them and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. So the spies get back, and the men describe, these 12 men describe the region exactly as God had promised they would find it. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. What does that mean, milk and honey? It's sort of become for us a metaphor of just meaning, you know, a great, a great place. Well, milk and honey, it, it's more of, refers to um, a land that has an abundance of wild vegetation, which would work well for herds, i.e. the milk, and 
flowers as well, which works for bees, i.e. the honey. So this would have been a very attractive place for a group of nomads like these Hebrews who had been shepherds, um, basically their, uh, you know, all their lives. So land of milk and honey, fantastic. They come back, report, land of milk and honey and giants. The land revealed an intimidating problem. There are huge people living there, and it is intimidating to them. Look at verse 29. The spies continue their report. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with them said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land of which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There we also saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, or part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. I don't know about you, but all my life, as I have read various passages, and they list all these Canaanite names... It's like driving down the road and and driving over potholes. Canaanites, Amorites, Jebusites. Every time I hear a preacher read these names, he usually throws in termites just to get a laugh. Because it's so... Mentioning these, these Canaanite names seems so irrelevant, honestly. Can we just be honest? Who cares? What difference does it make to list all these ites in here? Well, the difference, I think, is fairly significant when you see this passage as well as uh, later on in Deuteronomy when Moses is recapping. In in Deuteronomy, Moses describes these nations as seven nations greater and stronger than you. So the significance of mentioning all these Canaanites by name is to mention the fact that whoever they are, they are bigger and stronger than you. They are giants, and you cannot face them alone. The list of Canaanite names simply represents a list of victories that God planned to give his people if they would simply trust him. And that sort of leaves us with these two reactions. Caleb's reaction in verse 30 and the rest of the spies' reaction in verse 31 and following We're given two choices. Chapter 14 continues. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, look at these words, would that we had died in Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? 
our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. What short memories they had. Remember what Egypt was like? They were slaves. In fact, it was so bad that they cried out to the Lord for deliverance. And God delivered them with a powerful hand. And now they're about to enter the land. And they say, well, let's just go back to Egypt. The principle there is, we look at them and we think, well, how could they be like that until we think about our own lives and we're very much the same. And that is, familiar bondage is often preferred to an unknown future that requires faith. Let's just go back to what's familiar. Yes, it was bad. I mean, slavery, that's a real bummer. But have you seen the size of these giants that we're facing? Slavery looks better than death because death is what we're facing with the giants. We often prefer a familiar bondage than into an an unfamiliar future that requires faith in God. You got a handout there in which I've listed uh, some timeless lessons from the nation Israel for facing your future. And here's the first one. Resist the fear of the spies who saw the size of the opponent. The spies saw only the size of the opponent. Let's lift this principle from the text and apply it to your life for a second. By the way, that's, that's how you apply the Bible. You don't just read, read it and go, well, you know, that, all those ites don't relate to me. Well, the ites don't relate to you, but the principle of the ites relate to you. The Canaanites are simply how they applied the principle. Lift that timeless principle and apply it to your life. What is the giant that you're facing? What is, what is it about your future that frightens you? What is it about the will of God for your future that frightens you? It was the will of God that they entered the land. It was the will of God that they faced these giants. What is the will of God for your future that seems so huge, so big, and impossible? In fact, it is impossible. You cannot face it alone. And if you face it alone, you will fail. What is it in your life? Maybe it's your marriage. If you've never been married, marriage is larger than you can handle on your own. Maybe it's your health. Never had a health problem? Wait till you have a health problem. It is larger than you can handle on your own. Or maybe it isn't you at all. Maybe your fear of your future isn't your future, it's your kids' future or your grandchildren. And you're afraid. It's bigger than you can control. What is the giant? When we look at these spies, it's very easy to understand how they responded the way they did because we do the same thing, don't we? In our future, we are terrified because we can't control it. The author of the book of Hebrews said it this way in Hebrews 3.19. 
He says, we see that they were not able to enter the land because of unbelief. Unbelief. The majority of the spies brought back a bad report because they focused on their weakness. They didn't focus on God's promise. If you think about it, the nation had everything they needed to enter the land. They had a great leader in Moses. They had just spent months at Sinai getting the law. So they had a leader, they had the law, and they had the Lord. But they didn't have faith. And that's what they needed to succeed. So that's one position, and it's not the one we want. Look at the next few verses, chapter 14, verse 5 and following. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land. For they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us Do not fear them. Well, here's the timeless lesson, the second one. And that is to embrace the faith of Caleb, who also saw the size of his God. See, the spies only saw the size of the opponent. Caleb saw that too. But he also saw the size of his God. It wasn't that Caleb and Joshua didn't see the size of the people. They saw it. They brought back the report as well that there were giants in the land. But they also saw the size of God. The world is always going to be telling you to face the facts. And there are a lot of harsh facts to face. Our country is in a moral nosedive. Uh, Financially, you have no idea what the stock market is going to do. Look at, maybe it's a, a health report that you're given. Look at whatever the, bad, whatever the bad news is that you want to fill in the blank. Face the facts. It's bad. That's a fact. But it's not the only fact. For them, the giants were huge. That was a fact. We can't go up against them. That's a fact. But it's not the only fact. There's another fact. God. And God has promised that he would take them into the land and give them success. Fact one, the giants are big. Fact two, God is bigger than the giants. And God is with you. Your struggles, just like the Canaanites, are simply a list of God's potential victories in your life. All you need to face the future without fear is a faith that God is in control. All you need to face the future without fear is faith that God is in control. Put yourself in their sandals for a second. What if you could send scouts into your future for 40 days? 
You send 12 scouts to scatter all across your future and bring back word to you of what it's going to be like. And they bring you the brutal truth. It's a great land. It's a great future. But it's also full of giants. That is your future. It's a a future of blessing and it's a future of impossibilities at the same time. That is your future. God rigs it that way. He rigs it that way. Not because he delights in seeing you squirm, but because he delights in seeing you exercise your faith that he is bigger than the giants. Which seems worse? Refusing to follow God, though he promises success, which is what we just saw, or stubbornly pushing forward without God, which we won't read it, but that's what happens next. If you read the, just glance through the rest of Numbers 14, it's, it's like dealing with a child um, in that after they say, you know, we can't take the land, then God says, okay, then you won't get it. You're going to die. For 40 years, you're going to wander in the wilderness, and the children that you thought would be victims, they will enter the land under my power. All of a sudden, they have a change of heart. Go, oh, well, we're sorry. We want to enter the land. And they, they show up in the morning, and, and they say, here we are. I love that. What verse is that? We've got to read that verse. Where is that verse? Shout it out if you, if you see it. Oh, well, it's there somewhere. They show up and they say, oh, here we are. We're ready. And um, Moses says, don't go up. God's not with you. And they ignore him and they go up. And you know what? God wasn't with them. And the, all the ites whipped them all the way back down to Kadesh Barnea. Verse 40 in chapter 14. There it is, yeah. Look at that, verse 40. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went to the ridge of the hill country saying, here we are. (laughs) We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. Moses said, why are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up or you will be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. So I'll ask you again, what's worse, refusing to follow God, though he promises success, or pushing forward without God? Which is worse? It's amazing that Israel swung on both of those extremes in the course of a day. As I mentioned, we too often prefer the familiar as opposed to an unknown future. Better to go back to Egypt and be slaves than to have to trust God and move forward. How many times in our lives do we stay in a situation that isn't good, that isn't healthy, that isn't wise, because, only because it's familiar? And trusting God and moving on is so scary that we won't do it. So what does God have to do? He has to push. and He has to, to, make, to make you move. Let me guess, you sit in the same spot in this class every week, right? 
In church, you sit in the same spot. You probably park in the same parking place. If you, if you drive up and somebody's in your parking place, you go, I don't know. Maybe we should go somewhere else for church this morning. <laughs> this just isn't God's will that we're here today. You, you eat at the same restaurants. You order the same food. You eat the same thing for breakfast. And if we men would have it, we'd just wear the same thing every day. We're creatures of habit. We like the comfort of a routine. And we really hate change. But God, God's got a different view. God really likes change. Have you noticed that? He loves it. It's a big theological word called sanctification. And he is committed to change in your life, to bringing spiritual growth to your life and to my life. He forces it on us. We have a fear of change. God has a commitment to change. Well, let's turn our attention now from the nation Israel to the man Israel, Jacob. And turn back, if you would, from Numbers to Genesis chapter 32. We're going to see a similar lesson about facing your future without fear. But this is a little more personal as we go from a principle that applied to the nation Israel now to principles that applied to a particular person, Jacob. Genesis 32. What does it take for God to change you? You know, in the scripture, when God changes somebody's name, It's sort of a metaphor for God changing them. Changed Abraham's name. He changed uh, uh, Peter's name. He changed Jacob's name. And we see in this passage that name change and also a character change for Jacob. You remember where we are in Jacob's life at this point? He has fled out of fear from his brother Esau And he spent a couple of decades in Padanaram getting uh, two wives, two concubines, and and, uh, a whole passel of kids. And now he's returning back to the promised land. And as he is about to cross the Jabbok River, to cross back over into Canaan, he sends all all his family ahead, and Jacob alone is left on the other side of the river, Afraid to face Esau, his brother. Well, that's where we pick up the story here in Genesis 32. We're going to read starting in verse 24. Genesis 32, look at verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God 
face to face, yet my life has been preserved. As Moses wrote this, he would have gotten his hand slapped from my English teacher because you never know who he is referring to in here. Who's all the he's? He said this, he said that, he said this. He's, it's not till the very end that you realize, oh, the person that Jacob is wrestling with is God, and God is the one that touched. Notice he just says he touched Jacob's hip or his thigh, and uh, it was wrenched. The significance of the names in here is um, striking. What is your name? Again, you, you read that and you think, well, why, why, who cares what his name is? This, is? this is the guy who's wrestling against you, Jacob. Who cares what his name is? You want to take him down. What is your name? And then Jacob's name is changed. And then Jacob asks what's, what God's name is. And notice the Lord doesn't answer him. In fact, the answer isn't given until uh, Moses' time where finally the Lord reveals his divine name, Yahweh. And Jacob names the place Peniel, meaning the face of God. I have us read this passage because of the significance of it with relation to facing the future. Uh, Jacob was fearful of facing Esau. The reality was he came up against an opponent that was far greater than his brother, and that was the Lord. He could not uh, out-wrestle the Lord. The Lord simply touched his hip, and Jacob was done. And yet Jacob clung to God, asking for a blessing. And God honored Jacob's dogged determination to receive a blessing. It took a displaced hip, though, to wrench it from him, to wrench the request from him. It took pain. The book of Hosea, I don't know if you've got a margin reference there, but if you don't, write in the side of, you might write in the side of your margin, Hosea 12, verse 4. Hosea 12, verse 4 talks about um, Jacob as an example, not only of prevailing against God, but of weeping. And it, it's a paradox that I think we see in our lives as well, that you've got the weeping as well as the prevailing. You've got the weakness as well as the strength, as well as the, as, the, as the winning. It's a paradox which Jacob illustrates, which Hosea applies, and, and the Apostle Paul probably gives the fullest confession of it. We know Paul's version of it a lot better, and that is, when I am weak, then I am strong. That's, that's the way Paul put it. It's a paradox. When I am weak, then I am strong. That's Second uh, Corinthians 12.10. Jacob wrestled with tears, but he ultimately prevailed by confessing his need for God's blessing. Paul prayed three times that the thorn in his flesh would be removed, and each time God said no, and it brought Paul to a higher realization of a truth that we need to know in our lives, and that is that God's grace is sufficient. Wrestling with God always reveals our weaknesses, because at any moment, at any any moment, God can simply reach down and touch an area of our lives and wrench, bring great pain. And from that great pain, uh, pulls from us a begging for God to bless us. Notice, though, when God asked Jacob's name, why do you think the Lord asked Jacob's name? 
Remember what Jacob's name means? It means deceiver or heel grabber. Asking Jacob his name was asking for nothing less than a confession because Jacob had just proven over the last couple of years, a couple of decades of his life that he was the heel grabber that his name was. When Jacob said his name, it was a confession. I am a deceiver. And God said, your name is no longer going to be deceiver. It is going to be Israel, the one who strives with God and with man and prevails. The confession brought about a blessing. The same is true in your life and and in my life. These excruciating events that God brings us through, the hips that he wrenches, the thorns that he allows, the giants that he puts in your path, they're not there just to cause us to squirm. God's purpose is not to destroy you, but to compel you to change so that he'll bless you. It's what happened with Jacob. That's what will happen with us. Remember when our girls were little, they, uh, they'd come to me and they'd say, one of them in particular would say, in the air, Daddy, in the air. She wanted me to grab her and toss her up in the air and catch her. She loved it. And it got to be where we could, I mean, I could, I could get her pretty high and catch her. You know, you know when they're small, they're pretty light and you can just, you know, just kind of get ready and catch them. Got to be careful, though, the ceiling fan when you do that in the house. You know, it hits it. Well, my other daughter saw this. She thought, that looks like fun. You know, sister's obviously loving it. Daddy, let me, give me a try. Okay. So as she levels off about 10, you know, just below our 10-foot ceiling, her face goes from joy to sheer terror. And she comes down, and when I catch her, she grabs me with all four limbs. She says, not again, not again, Daddy. So I set her down. And I, I, I got to thinking about that. What is it that causes, that caused absolute joy? Same activity. One daughter was absolute joy. And the other daughter was absolute terror. What was the difference? And I... I figured it must be that the the daughter with joy was able to enjoy it because she had an absolute confidence in my ability to catch her. The other daughter was absolute terror because she had an absolute confidence in her inability to control the flight. Both were true. Both were facts. But it was just a matter of what are you going to focus on? Are you going to focus on the fact that dad can catch you or are you going to focus on the fact that you are not in control? And we could apply that to our lives personally, but I want to apply that for a second to our kids. And instead of you and I doing the tossing, let's pretend you and I are sitting across the room watching God toss our children. Where's your confidence? Is your confidence in the father's ability to catch that child or that grandchild? Or is your focus on your inability to control the flight? You know, we want, every parent and grandparent faces the tension. We want our children to follow Christ, but we hesitate to let God lead them. We want to provide. We want to protect. We want to direct their lives. 
so that they will receive the good that we desire for them. And here's the strange irony, and it really is, it really is strange. The very love that wants the best for our children can become the barrier that prevents them from receiving it when we get in the way of allowing God to lead their lives. Jacob faced this. We see here as he is fearful, he sends all his family across the, uh, the river ahead of him. And we didn't read in the passage, but we also see that the Lord, uh, that, that Jacob put Joseph in the very back. Why? Because Joseph was most special. And he put the ones that were most expendable up front, protecting Joseph. Well, the final son had not yet been born. Um, all 11 of Jacob's 12 sons were born in Padan Aram, but only one was born in Canaan, and that was Benjamin. And you remember the story that follows in, as Genesis progresses. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of the others, doted on him. The brothers were jealous, sold him into slavery in Egypt. And then a famine came that basically forced the family to go down. What do you know? Joseph is the, the ruler of Egypt. And Joseph in disguise, demands that in order to get grain, I want to see this other 12th son. Jacob had not sent Benjamin down because he was afraid that something might happen to him. And so he was protecting him. And as a result, the whole family was going to starve unless Jacob released and trusted God with his son. Finally, he was forced to do it. And it was shown that he actually could trust God, and, uh, and it worked out. One more passage I want us to look at relates to what I just mentioned about trusting regarding the future, and that's Genesis 46. Genesis 46. We read with wrestling with the Lord how Jacob was entering the land again. And now as Jacob is leaving the land to go down to Egypt to let Joseph care for the whole family, These four verses, we get three promises from God that are also promises that we can apply to our lives. If you are struggling with a change that God has initiated in your life, if you are afraid of the future, if you're uncertain about the giants that you face, whatever it is, whatever is impossible for your future, there are three promises in these four verses that that gave Jacob confidence, they can also give you confidence about your future. Genesis 46, verses 1 through 4. Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba. So now they're on their way to Egypt. And offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. There's more than three promises there, but there are three that I want to lift from the text and apply to our lives. So if you've got your hand out there, you could fill in the first one. The first promise is in verse 3. God says, I am God. Do not be afraid. 
I am God. Do not be afraid. Sounds simple, but how often we forget it. He is God and we are not. There's giants ahead of you. There are thorns that you struggle with. Uh, there's, there's hips that you, that you limp on. Whatever the weakness is that, you are, that you're facing, whatever the impossibility that's ahead of you, remember, God says, I am God. Do not be afraid. When God initiates change in your life, especially when it seems frightening or disappointing or not what you wanted, remember, he is God. And that can help put your fear at ease. Second promise is also in verse 3. The Lord said, I will make you a great nation there. See that word? There. You must be willing to follow God where he leads because where he wants to take you is where he wants to bless you. It isn't here. It isn't in the familiar. It isn't in the bondage of Egypt. He wants to take you there, wherever there is. There is where he wants to make you blessed. Be willing to leave the familiar and trust God to face those giants because it is there that he wants to bless you, not here. And the third promise, the final one, and I love this, is in verse 4. God says, I will go down with you. You're not going alone. God's will always includes God's presence. It's a wonderful promise. But notice, there's not a lot of detail given here. The Lord didn't say, okay, for the first three years, this is what's going to happen. Let me tell you how it's going to go. He didn't give him any details, no specifics, and neither does he give them to us. But what he gave Jacob, he does give to us, and that's a promise, I will go with you. In fact, it was the final words that Jesus said when he ascended. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. God's will for your life includes his presence. You're not alone. So let me ask you the question once again. If you could send spies into your future and they would look around and they'd come back and give you a report, would you have the courage to follow God into an unknown future? I hope that you will. I hope that you'll trust him. And in those moments when you struggle with that trust, remember these three promises because they are timeless truths. I am God. I will make you a great nation there. And I will go down with you. Pray with me. Father, we don't have to look very far into the future to see uh, the fear in our hearts. It's unknown. We've been hurt in the past. We've had uh, a life of pain. But we've also seen your faithfulness without exception in our lives. And we know that in spite of the fact that we can't see the future, we know that you do. And we take great comfort in these promises that you gave to Jacob that we can apply to our lives as well. You are God. And it's where you're wanting to take us. That's where you're wanting to bless us. 
And you're not just pointing the way and saying, see you later, but you're walking with us every step of the way. Father, I know that there are some in this class who are fearful of the future and however that applies. I ask that you give them courage, courage to follow, to have the faith of Caleb who saw the size of his God and not the size of the opponent. So, Father, we we trust you. We, We eagerly look forward to what the future will hold. And thank you so much for these promises. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Don't forget the uh, handouts up here. There's some you can on the Holy Land trip.